There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. And she kept on praying to the Lord. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshiped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the animal sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, the husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you've weaned him, only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, 
and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he shall be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hide themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and makes them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli, the priest. Well, Today we're starting a new series of sermons on the life of David, as you can see from our slide here. There's a, a Michelangelo's David, a great, one of the great statues. As you can see, we've only put the top half of, of uh, Michelangelo's David on this slide, as we are Christians and we don't want anything below the belt. But anyway, um, you can see we're, we're talking about the life of David. You might ask, why are we doing this? three reasons. If you want to understand the Bible, you need to know David. David is one of the central characters in the whole of the history of redemption. The Bible would be actually inco incoherent without David. Uh, God centers his promises for the whole world on David's line and says that a descendant of David will be a great king who will rule the world in justice and peace. So the whole Bible is looking for great David's greater son. If you want to understand the Bible, you need to know David. Secondly, if you want to understand yourself, you need to know David. Why do I say that? David is perhaps the author of the most personal, intimate, and revealing poetry in the Bible, the songs and hymns that we call the Psalms. And in them, you will read a person who is absolutely honest, absolutely candid, absolutely frank about the struggles of life, the struggles of the life of faith. You read him in despair. You read him suffering. You read him in darkness, stress, surrounded by enemies, not knowing which way to go. You, David is completely uh, no holds barred when it comes to sharing about the life of faith. One of his poems uh, ends in such a way that you think there is no hope. And yet, through it all, David is seeking God. And so if we want to understand ourselves and the journey of faith that we're on as Christians, you need to know David. And thirdly, and most importantly, if you want to know Jesus Christ, you need David. Why is that? 
because David shows us the best of humanity, established as God's chosen king over God's people Israel. He's the only person who's described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. Yet, we discover that even the best of men is deeply flawed. So in David, we will see what great virtue and nobility look like. And that's what we really want in national leaders, isn't it? Virtue, character, nobility. But we also see the deep, dark flaws that exist even in the best of people. And that will make us yearn for someone better, for a greater king. In David, we will see lessons about kingship that lead us to understand Jesus Christ better, who is the true and greater king. Jesus is the fulfillment of the hopes of the ages. I can guarantee you that unless this world ends, in a few weeks' time, we will all be singing Christmas carols. It's not very far away, you know. About nine weeks, we'll be singing Christmas carols. My wife, once again, will dig out her Nat King Cole CD and put it on repeat 24 hours a day for the whole of December so that by the 25th of December, I will be heartily sick of Nat King Cole and all his friends. Now, one of the great carols of that season is called O Little Town of Bethlehem. Do you know it? Listen to this. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. The hopes and fears of all the years. That's it. In the life of David, we hope these hopes and we fear these fears because David clearly shows us greatness and he clearly shows us that humanity needs a greater king. Now that's what the book of Samuel is all about. In the Hebrew Bible, it was a single book called Samuel followed by another book called Kings. In our Bibles, these books have been divided into two parts. So we have one and two Samuel and one and two kings. It's like a four-part epic series. It's, it's something that George Lucas could have turned into a wonderful series of films if only he'd got hold of it instead of Star Wars. Now, Samuel, this book, is all about the need for a king. It has three main characters, Samuel, Saul, and David. Samuel is the man of God who leads the nation as a judge. He's the kingmaker. Saul is the king that the people ask for. He's kind of really impressive. He's so tall, he's head and shoulders above every other man. He's a king like the other nations have. And he is a complete disaster. We read of the rise and fall of Saul. Uh, meanwhile, David is introduced quite subtly. He comes from the backwoods. He's not that tall. He's young. He's the seventh son. In fact, they don't even call him in from the fields when they're trying to figure out which of the sons might be a king. An unlikely candidate, but he is the one that God chooses, a man after God's heart. Now, that gives you a bit of background. I've got three points today. Firstly, what to do when your world is falling apart. Secondly, pour out your soul. Thirdly, rejoice in the Lord. In fact, those three points could make one sentence. What to do when your world is falling apart, pour out your soul and rejoice in the Lord. First, 
what to do when your world is falling apart. The story begins, 1 Samuel chapter 1, but it doesn't start with kings and politics and the marble corridors of power. It begins with a woman. It begins with a story of heartbreak because here we meet Hannah and her world is falling apart. How? Two levels. Firstly, national crisis. Secondly, personal tragedy. National crisis. Samuel starts in the time of the judges, the time before the nation of Israel had kings. It's pre-monarchy. These are the few year, the decades and few hundred years leading up to 1000 BC, which was the rough date when Saul became king. And in the Hebrew Bible, this book, Samuel, followed straight on from Judges. Now, Judges is an interesting book. The last few chapters of Judges are never taught in Sunday school. You can guarantee that as the kids went out today with their turquoise t-shirted leaders, none of them are going to be taught the last few chapters of Judges. Because these texts are terrifying and grim. And I'm going to share some of it now. Chapter 19 of Judges is a tale of escalating moral anarchy. A stranger and his concubine, and a concubine was a woman who lived with a man but had lower status than a wife. He should never have had a concubine, but that's another story. A stranger and his concubine are traveling, and they stay in a town overnight. And an old man meets them in the town, and he invites them to stay at his house. But he says some ominous words. Don't spend the night in the town square. Now that night, wicked men from around the city surround the house and pound on the door. They demand that the guest be brought out so that they can gang rape him. In one of the most horrendous moments of the Bible, the owner of the house offers his daughter and the concubine instead. He says, you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But in verse 25 of that chapter, the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn, they let her go. By morning, the woman was dead. She's fallen at the doorway with her hands on the threshold, locked outside. And her husband comes out and just says, get up. And she fails to respond. He puts her body on his donkey and sets out for home. When he gets home, he takes a knife, cuts up her body, limb by limb, into 12 parts. He sends one part to each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And in Judges 19, verse 30, everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done. Not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something, so speak up. And as a result of that grim episode, civil war broke out in Israel. The other 11 tribes waged war on the tribe of Benjamin, where the incident had happened. Severe losses were inflicted on both sides. Thousands of men lost their lives. The Benjamites put up a fight, but they were beaten and subjugated, and then everybody wept. And in Judges 21.3, they cried out to God, why has this happened? Indeed. Actually, the book has already been hinting about why this has happened. In four places, this phrase is repeated. Don't turn to them. I'll just read them for you. Chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. Chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. And 21.25, the verse that Judges ends on, 
in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Have we got the memo? It's saying that the days when Israel had no king were times of moral anarchy. The final chapters of Judges are grim and ugly. They're showing us what life is like when everyone does when they, as they see fit. What life is like when everyone does as they see fit. Now, in 1651, the English philosopher Thomas Hobbes published a book called Leviathan. Hobbes expressed his views on human nature and on the necessity of government and society. Uh, philosopher Nigel Warburton explains it like this. Hobbes had a low view of human beings. We are all basically selfish, driven by fear of death and the hope of personal gain, he believed. All of us seek power over others, whether we realize this or not. If you don't accept Hobbes' picture of humanity, why do you lock the door when you leave your house? Why do you have keys in your pocket? Surely it's because you know that there are many people out there who would happily steal everything you own. But, you might argue, only some people are that selfish. Hobbes disagreed. He thought that at heart we all are that selfish and that it's only the rule of law and the threat of punishment that kept us in check. Hobbes summed up life outside society with these famous words. Solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. That's the world of judges. Life is nasty, brutish, and short. Things falling apart. It's chaotic. It's a time of moral anarchy. In such a time, you know, the weakest and the most vulnerable members of society are the ones who suffer the most, like that concubine, because the strong eat the weak. Now, does this have any relevance to our times? Look at Britain in 2019. 11 days ago on September the 11th, there's a date to remember, Scottish pastor and writer David Robertson wrote on his blog, I'm sitting in Glasgow airport heading for Sydney, sorrowful to be leaving family and friends in a country which is now governed by a parliament led by incompetent, dishonest clowns. If anyone thinks these words are too harsh, just have a look at last night's pantomime in the UK parliament, which is available to see on video. Robertson continued, we have a parliament which refuses to let the government govern and yet which refuses to let the people decide on a new government. We have a parliament which wants to assert its sovereignty and does so by surrendering that sovereignty to a foreign power. We have a parliament which complains about the threat of mob rule in this country and then behaves like an unruly mob of schoolboys. But that is not the worst of it. We've got to stop pointing the finger at Westminster and politicians, which conveniently avoids us all looking in the mirror. Let's look at individual hearts, individual attitudes, values. Let's think about the moral character of our nation. Martin Luther King famously said, I have a dream. Remember that speech? I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. What about the content of our character? Perhaps the highest value in our culture at the moment, the most cherished and protected value is personal freedom. Our culture says you must be free to do what you want, 
whenever you want. You must look deep into your heart and see your deepest desires and act on them. You are free to define your identity. You are free to break whatever community vows you've made in order to achieve self-fulfillment because the supreme goal of life is your personal freedom and stuff the rest of them. Oh, as long as you don't hurt anyone or have sex with children. Now, it is, is it possible that future historians will look back on our times and write, in those days the UK had no king, everyone did as they saw fit? National crisis. That's how 1 Samuel begins. Secondly, personal tragedy. Personal tragedy. The other context here is the context of Hannah's life. It's not the, the big political background and the state of the nation, but personal tragedy. She was barren in a culture that prized a woman's ability to have children above pretty much everything else about her. And this is a very sad story. Uh, it, she most likely was Elkanah's first wife. She's named first. Um, in the text and then it, we see in chapter 1 verse 5 she really was his first love but she was barren so he took a second wife Penina and Penina's name means fruitful well she certainly lived up to her name chapter 1 verse 4 refers to all her sons and daughters it's a woman sitting at the table surrounded by kids whereas Hannah sits alone with her double portion of meat hardly a consolation. Now, as well as violating God's standards for marriage, Elkanah is hardly a man gifted with empathy. Look at what he says to his wife in uh, chapter 1, verse 8. Why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? What a guy. <laughs> now, to make matters worse, there's actually an intense rivalry in this bigamist's home. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 6, the rival, Penina, kept provoking Hannah in order to wind her up. It went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. What a picture of domestic bliss. Do you think the Bible's in favor of bigamy? I mean, what an talk about dysfunctional family. There's rivalry between the wives. One of them can't have children, the other has loads and provokes her. And there's this um, obvious favoritism going on for the husband with the first wife. It's an absolute mess. And the outcome of all of this is deep sorrow and anguish. So our story begins today with a national crisis and a personal tragedy for Hannah. Now how does the Bible teach us to respond in such a time as this? What are the lessons for us today? Look, this is real, isn't it? This isn't a history lesson. Yes, it's history, but it's written for us. This is real, it matters. Because we face crises. And we face personal tragedies. And some of you are facing them right now, and others will face them soon. What are we going to do? There are two things we must learn to do, and they are not things that will come naturally. We will have to train ourselves to do them, but this is the only way to find comfort in this world. Pour out your soul and rejoice in the Lord.
Pour out your soul and rejoice in the Lord. So the second point, pour out your soul. The text says, Hannah's womb was closed. But I want to ask a very personal question. And I want to ask it sensitively. Who closed it? Verse 5 is unequivocal. To Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. The Lord. Now, this is one of the most difficult, painful, and intimate struggles that a woman can face. I confess I don't understand the depths of sorrow and grief that infertility can bring. But I've known and pastored people throughout the years who lived with this grief and bore it as a sorrow for many years. This verse says that fertility and infertility are in the hands of a sovereign God. His name is the Lord. The Bible teaches that our Heavenly Father is sovereign in the whole of life. And that means he's sovereign over your suffering. You get that? He's sovereign over your suffering. Whatever your suffering is today, God is still sovereign. And he cares about it. And he's infinitely wise. And he's infinitely loving. And the fact that you can't put all of that together in your head logically doesn't change a single bit of it. The key thing, though, isn't really the logical struggle, is it? The key thing is what's going on in the heart. What are we going to do with that information? God is sovereign over my suffering, and he's infinitely wise, and he's infinitely loving, and I can't put it together. In verse 6, Peninnah takes the information that Hannah's womb is closed, and she provokes. She's smug because her life's working out better. And she disdains and despises her rival. Elkanah is hardly better, is he? In verse 8, we see he pities. He feels bad for his wife. He doesn't really enter into her suffering. He doesn't seem to get it. But Hannah, in verse 9, shows us what to do. She prays. She prays. And what a prayer it is. I wonder what you think prayer should look like. This chapter gives us one of the most intimate pictures of true prayer in the whole Bible. God's sovereignty spurs Hannah into action. Before, she was passive, but now she acts. In verse 9, she stands up from the table and leaves. She walks out the door and she goes to the Lord's house to pray. This place that we've heard about is called Shiloh. This is where uh, God's tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was before they built the temple in Jerusalem. This is as close as you can get to God's presence in Israel at this time. And so she goes to God. She goes to get as near to God as she can. She goes right to, right to the tabernacle. Now, what do you think faithful, godly prayers look like? Do you imagine that such prayers are all calm, serene, collected and smiling? Whatever will be, will be. Que sera, sera. No way. Look at these verses. Verse 10. Deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Verse 11. Lord Almighty, she says, if you'll only look on your servant's misery. She brings her misery to God. Verse 15, she tells the priest, I'm, I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I wasn't 
drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Don't take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. In other words, she prayed and she poured out her soul. Everything she was, she brings it into God's presence. And that's what we need to learn to do. Pour out your soul. Now, if you are feeling or experiencing any of these things, deep anguish, bitter weeping, misery, troubled, grief, then you are actually in a good place to learn how to pray. Because now you can learn to really pray. Now, if your life is good at the moment, and all's well with the world, and the sun's shining, even in Manchester, I'm really happy for you. But sorrow will come. It will come. None of us walks in the sunshine all our days. What will you do when the days of trouble come? You must prepare yourself now and learn to pray your heart out. And it says here that Hannah poured out her soul. Now, what are your prayers like? Are they neat and tidy? Biblical? Orthodox, but bloodless? Or are your prayers like fast food? A quick snack on the road, a drive through before you get into something more important? Or are your prayers dry and formulaic? They're true enough, but they come nowhere near your heart. The Bible shows us here how to pray. You've got to learn to pour out your soul. Why wouldn't we do this? Are there deep things that we won't pray about? We just won't go there. Now, I've been wrestling with this question all week. Why wouldn't we pray like this? I asked some friends in our life group on Thursday night. Here are some of their thoughts. We might not pray about the deep stuff in case God doesn't give us what we want. And then where will we be? We might not pray about it because if we don't get what we want, we will be so disappointed. Better not to ask than to risk that disappointment. If we pray about these things, we might lose control. Oh, and we want control, don't we? We might start crying and not be able to stop. Actually, I think the text tells us that's what we need to do. Hannah does cry. She pours out her soul and she asks for a son. Yet she does something breathtaking in the middle of it all. She makes a promise. She makes a vow. Would you look at verse 11? She made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then what? Then I will thank you all the days of my life? No. Then I will give him to you. I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. What's this about a razor? Is she promising God a hippie? No. This thing about the razor was a visible sign to everyone around that this person was completely devoted to the service of God and you could see it by his long hair and beard. And the priest, Eli, he's the guy in charge of the tabernacle, he sees her. She's standing there. She's not praying out loud. She's just sort of pouring it out and mumbling. And Eli thinks she's drunk. Now, that is a sign, isn't it, that something's not right here. <laughs> I mean, here's the, the spiritual leader of the nation. 
and he sees a woman praying by the tabernacle and assumes that she's half cut, three sheets to the wind. This is a priest totally lacking spiritual discernment, assuming the worst of a praying woman. What a numpty! But he does at least, once she set him straight, have the decency to say in verse 17, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. And in verse 18, we see the outcome of such a prayer. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went her way and she ate something. Just notice this, she ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Now, notice this. The prayer hasn't been answered yet. Nothing has changed yet. Actually, that's not true. Something has changed. Hannah has changed. See that? She poured out her soul, and now she's changed. Now she can eat, and her face has changed. Not because she's got what she asked for, but because she has got God, which is what you get in prayer. That's the main thing. The best thing God could give us is not uh, a child, or a house, or a spouse, or even health. The best thing God could give us is himself. He is the chief end of humanity, and we won't get him without earnest, fervent, heartfelt prayer. So, you still with me? What to do when your life falls apart? Firstly, pour out your soul. Secondly, finally, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Here's the second thing, and on, on this we finish. We have to learn we have to learn how to be joyful. The story continues in chapter 1, verse 19 to 28. We read the wonderful uh, green light, the affirmative answer, the Lord opens her womb. Elkanah makes love to her. Uh, she conceives a child. The child is born safely through all those nine months of anxiety. And he's safely born. And they name him Samuel, which is a great name. And it is... It sounds like, uh, you can see it actually in your footnote, I think. Uh, Samuel sounds like the Hebrew heard by God. Heard by God. And then Hannah kept her promise. There's some poignant scenes here, aren't they? She says, I won't come up this time to, the, to, the, to Shiloh. I'll just stay back because I need to wean the baby. He's still breastfeeding. Uh, there's precious moments with Samuel uh, nursing him holding him close. She knows this will be the last quality time she will ever spend with baby Samuel because she has devoted him to God's service and she will keep her promise. And so she does. The end of the chapter, she goes back and sees Eli, who probably is feeling slightly embarrassed when he hears these words. Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I'm the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he shall be given over to the Lord. And he, Eli, worshipped the Lord there. I wonder what Hannah felt like. doesn't tell us. It certainly inspired Eli. He worshipped God when he saw this awe-inspiring devotion. And then Hannah prays. Chapter 2. And I want to just point out a few things about this prayer as we come soon to the Lord's table. And as we come before the Lord with these visible words of bread and wine, remembering his sacrifice for us. Firstly, notice this prayer is not all about the baby, which you might have expected. Apart from uh, one reference in verse 5, babies are not mentioned. This prayer is not about personal fulfillment. 
Secondly, it's not all about Hannah. Her feelings, her sense of loss, giving Samuel away, her struggle with pride maybe because, you know, I did keep my promise. Her anxiety, will she be able to have more children? None of that gets mentioned. This prayer, in other words, is not all about me. Although we know that we have to pour out our soul to God, this prayer teaches us an equally important dimension. It's all about the Lord. He is the center of Hannah's world. He's the one who gives her life, joy, and meaning, not the baby. Amazing. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. That means she's strong in him. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There's no one besides you. You know, how many uh, love songs have sung something like, there's no one like you? That's what she's singing, praying. There's no one like you, Lord. He's the one who gives her life, joy, and meaning. And how she prays, she, she meditates on God, on his character, on his attributes, what he's like. Verse 2, you're incomparable. God's holiness is a cause for joy. There's no one like him. Verse 3, God's wisdom, he knows best in every situation. Therefore, let every mouth be silenced and let us listen to God who weighs all things. And verses 4 to 8, she looks on life, including her own, and looks on how God works in history and in the pages of the Bible. And she realizes this holy, wise God is, is supremely powerful, But look how he exercises his power in justice and in surprising reversals. Verse 4, the bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children. She who had had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. God, our God, is a God of surprising reversals. This world doesn't work out the way that the bullies think it will, the way that the rich, proud oppressors think it will. God is the one who is in charge and in the end, justice comes in surprising reversals. And therefore, our only hope In life and death, our only comfort is to know this God. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. All this gives Hannah joy. What to do when your world falls apart? Pour out your soul and rejoice in the Lord. Her theology of God, her theology of a sovereign Lord, gives her a robust approach to life that can withstand anything. God is sovereign, but it doesn't make her passive. It leads to action, to prayer, and then joy. You see, when you really grasp who's in charge of your life, when you really grasp who's in charge of the world, then you can be filled with joy, even when your world falls apart. A number of years ago, my wife and I were uh, living in America, in Boston. We lived in a wonderful campus of a seminary theological college, about 40 minutes north of Boston Airport, and brought up our family there. Our fourth child was born in the States. He is an illegal immigrant, by the way. If any of you see him, he could be deported. And uh, we were living there, happily enjoying our days, but one of our children uh, had grave health issues, 
And we also were going out in faith for a fourth year of study in which we tried to fundraise to support ourselves. And this is what happened. We didn't raise enough money. We've, in fact, we raised 50%. Then the stock market crashed globally and we lost nearly all of our savings. Then our neighbor back in Britain, we still had a house which we were renting, our neighbor wrote to us and threatened to sue us if we didn't build a 5,000 pound retaining wall along the side of the property within 30 days. This was right before Christmas. And then we discovered that the, the medication our son was being given wasn't actually effective and we needed a new medication which would cost thousands of dollars. And all of this happened in the space of a few weeks. And I would say, it's fair to say, God took our legs out from under us. If there was any hint of pride and self-satisfaction, it was quickly stripped away. and We were reduced to nothing. I remember feeling physically weak and frail in my bones. And going to the library every day, still carrying on with the studies and thinking, what are we going to do? Maybe we need to stop all this and go home. And at that time, God gave me a psalm. Interestingly, somebody used it on the slide at the beginning of this meeting without knowing what I'm about to say. Psalm 46, and I read and meditated on it every day for three months. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. That's the world falling apart. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. He looks to heaven, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. You see, God being king actually is the greatest strength in the time of life falling apart. Have you found this out yet? Have you poured out your heart? Have you found how to rejoice in the Lord in the midst of sorrow? Hannah shows us, she teaches us how to pray. She shows us actually how to live. One last thing before we sing and come to the table. Hannah prayed for a son. She got one. But she also prayed for someone else. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. <clears throat> it's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Look at this. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. She knew that we need the right king in this world and in our lives. She knew that we need the one chosen by God, the Lord's anointed. And when we come to the Lord's table, we come to sit at the feet of a king, the great king, Jesus, the one who set aside his throne and his rule, and who was enthroned on the cross where he gave his life for us to ransom us and to bring us back to God. Let's pray.